So as we look at this and sort of start to break it down a little bit, the first thing that I feel that, that we should definitely talk about here is the word jealous. Because when we think of the adjective jealous in today's context, there's certainly often a very negative connotation to that. And much of that has to do with the way that the meaning of the word itself has shifted over the years. When you see the word jealous used in scripture, though, specifically with relation to God, that negative element of the word is not really present in the way it's used. And I want to explain that a little bit further. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to An Average Account of Exceptional Things. My name is Chandler, and I'm your host. Thanks for joining us today. So this week... We are continuing our series on the Ten Commandments. As you may have noticed, this episode is titled as Part 2, which means that there is, in fact, a Part 1. As with any series we've done, these episodes do sort of stand alone, but they really go better as a whole sequence. So if you haven't listened to Part 1, I would highly encourage you to go ahead and just pause this episode real quick and go back and give that a listen, and then come back to this one. Because I think that that episode really sets the stage for where we're picking things up today. So with that, I will assume that if you're still here, you're in it for the long haul. Now just as we did last episode, let's go ahead and start off today by reading the verses from Exodus 20 that this topic of the Ten Commandments comes from just to make sure that we're all fresh and plugged in with this scripture as we begin our discussion. This is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. 
you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off, and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to them, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So that is the passage where the Ten Commandments come from there in Exodus 20. So let's get right into taking a look at our next commandment. Last week we scratched the surface with the first commandment, You shall have no other gods before me. So the next one that we see there in verse 4 and the first part of verse 5 is, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, obviously, this commandment is really a group of verses, namely verses 4 through 6, but I want to stop there and discuss the first part here before we get into sort of the second half of this commandment. So when you hear that first part, It's just a little odd, because if you're anything like me, you may have thought to yourself, well, wait a minute, does that mean that we can never create any artwork or visual representation of anything, ever? What about paintings? Or what about films? What about when those mediums are used and produced in a way that has the goal of glorifying God? Well... This is an example of why we can't cherry-pick verses and why it's so important to have context when we're reading and studying a passage. Because this is a commandment against the creation of these likenesses for a specific purpose. And we see this in the beginning of verse 5 there that we read just a moment ago. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Here, the Lord is commanding Israel specifically not to create these likenesses, not to create any image for the purpose of worship. And so there is certainly a distinction there to be made. And there are two important notes on this. The one that first comes to mind for me is that we should not be creating physical idols, which goes along with the commandment that we discussed last week about not serving or having other gods. But there is another side to this, though. Because even if we are not making idols in our spiritual lives, whether that be the worship of other gods of established religions or or other cultures, or the elevation of other things in our lives to the point that we're effectively worshiping them and making idols out of them, even if we're not making those idols in our spiritual lives, this command still dictates that there should not be any physical likeness created for the purpose of worship. 
even if that is worship to the Lord. And there is a very good reason for this. Because the Lord has no physical form. Now remember, this is the Old Testament scripture. So this is not some kind of issue in terms of, you know, well, you said the Lord has no physical form, but what about the coming of Jesus in the New Testament? We're talking here about God the Father, who has no physical form, as opposed to Jesus the Son, who obviously did have a physical form, who is fully God and fully man. And in terms of an explanation for why this is or why this is so important, there is a passage from Deuteronomy that my study Bible references in the footnotes that I actually found to be extremely helpful in explaining things a bit more, and I would like to go ahead and share that with you now. This is going to be Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 through 20. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves, in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. So here we see once again the point that God has no physical form first, as well as a bit more extrapolation and an explanation on this point as to the risks of looking to other uh, physical things when we worship, as objects of worship. And there's a story I'd like to share here, and without getting into too many details, hopefully I can convey this point effectively. I once heard a particular religious leader uh, addressing a group of folks that they're, they're about to leave on, uh, on a short trip, and he was presenting sort of a, uh, a worship service or a, a little devotional before they left. And he had some beads, some prayer beads, and he was offering them to, to anyone who would like some. And he made this point, he said, uh, essentially, that everyone previously who had taken these beads, who had carried them uh, with him, who had brought them on the, on the trip, had been safe and had returned safely. And when he said this, I saw a lot of people going to, to get some beads. You know, and not necessarily that uh, there's anything wrong with some beads, but it really struck me when I saw this because it occurred to me, and I got to discuss this uh, with some fellow Christians of mine as well, that it was almost as if those people saw the beads as something that was going to keep them safe, to make sure that 
everything was all right. When in fact, it doesn't have anything to do with the beads. It's God who watches over us. It's God who goes with us, who is always present every minute of every day. And when that item perhaps should have pointed towards God in that way, instead I think that it would be very easy to make an idol out of that thing, to see that item as your protector. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily what happened for any of those people, but certainly the way it was presented, you know, that that came to mind for myself and others. And that right there isn't even an item created with the purpose of use for worship. And yet it had serious potential to become an idol. Now, step back for a moment and consider actually making something with the purpose of using it as an object for worship. How much more slippery is that slope right there? The danger is is truly just immense there to find ourselves serving an idol, a false god, even if there were somehow good intentions at the onset. And another point here on this passage from Deuteronomy, it mentions you know, the, the stars, the sun, the moon. This isn't just necessarily for things that we've created for the purpose of worship, but we should also be cautious that we are worshiping God, not worshiping his creation. Ultimately, creation points back to the creator, and we should always be very mindful of that. That's a little off topic from the commandment of not creating these images or likenesses, but I do think that it's worth saying at least once. But there is, of course, a second half to the verses for this commandment, that being the latter half of verse 5 into verse 6. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, as we look at this and sort of start to break it down a little bit, the first thing that I feel that that we should definitely talk about here is the word jealous. Because when we think of the adjective jealous in today's context, there's certainly often a very negative connotation to that. And much of that has to do with the way that the meaning of the word itself has shifted over the years. When you see the word jealous used in scripture, though, specifically with relation to God, that negative element of the word is not really present in the way it's used. And I want to explain that a little bit further. The Lord being a jealous God is not the same as a young man being jealous because his girlfriend got assigned to a class project with a team that has another guy on it. It's completely devoid of any of that sort of petty, spiteful attitude that we so frequently associate with jealousy as we observe it in the behavior of others and even in our own behavior. And what makes this different is that while, yes, the Lord does command that we should not be worshiping any other gods, he is completely justified in doing so. He created all that exists, 
the sky, the trees, the air we breathe, and even each and every one of us. He created all of that, and he deserves our worship. In fact, he alone is worthy of that worship and praise. Now, furthermore, when we neglect that, and when we live in misalignment with that, it's actually harmful to us, whether we realize it or not. And there's a great little passage from 1 Corinthians that I find really helps clear this up a bit. That passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 through 33. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. There is a question that you may have heard raised, and that question is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is our ultimate purpose? The answer? To glorify God. And one of the scriptural references that's a basis for that answer is this passage right here from 1 Corinthians. And so from there, when you think about that, the chief end of man is to glorify God, it's a bit easier to see how this use of the word jealous differs from the more negatively bent modern use. If the chief end of man is to glorify God, then the Lord's jealousy actually displays a love and a concern for our well-being, as the worship of other gods, a.k.a. the worship of false gods, takes us away from that chief end, or that ultimate purpose for us. So when you hear that, or read that word jealous here, and elsewhere in scripture, just remember that it isn't really used in the same way that it is in our modern contexts. Now that we have that out of the way, the other big thing that I feel we have to discuss here is this very serious warning that the Lord provides. Now at first, it's easy to read these verses about the iniquity of the fathers on the children and feel like something's sort of amiss here. Because we know that faith in God and obedience to him are things that are inherently personal endeavors. But there are some things that we can once again notice about this warning when we actually stop and take a moment to consider these verses. First, there is a physical, practical element to this. When someone sins against God, there is a spiritual consequence of that disobedience to God, always. The wages of sin is death. But there's also a physical consequence to that sin as well. For example, if someone commits adultery, that is a sin against God. There's a very real spiritual consequence to that. Now, when that individual's spouse finds out, there are also physical ramifications for that sin in that relationship. Sometimes, 
and I would actually say often, those physical consequences for immoral actions, for our sin, can have an impact on our family members or on our children that is potentially long-lasting, even across generational lines. So while, yes, we are each personally accountable for our actions and our conduct, because that relationship with God is a personal relationship, the sins of an individual often still can have an impact on that person's children or even grandchildren. Because God gives us these commandments for our own good. Let me say that again. The commandments that God gives us, the guidelines for what is moral, what is immoral, they are for our own good, for our benefit. And we would all be much better off if we perfectly followed those all the time. Now, secondly, there are two qualifiers here on these verses about the iniquities of the fathers on the children. First, we see here that this is specifically for those who hate God. Let me say that again, those who hate God, indicating that this sort of cycle, if you will, can be escaped and broken through repentance. Now, the second qualifier here is that this suffering comes to the third and fourth generation, but also that God shows steadfast love to, quote, thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, which here refers to the thousandth generation. So those are a couple other things that stand out here that we really need to take notice of when we're examining these verses 4 through 6. Now the last thing I want to mention here about these verses is this. While this warning may seem a bit harsh, or maybe you would even think it's a bit unwarranted here, it's really not. Now I've heard this compared to a parent warning their child, hey, if you play around by that cliff's edge, you're going to fall off and you're going to die. And I think that's fairly analogous. Because just like when that parent warns their child of the very real, very serious consequences for their action, likewise, the Lord knows the gravity of the dangers that breaking his commandments carries. And so... He warns the Israelites here of just how serious the ramifications of disregarding them are. With that said, I think that there's also a lot that we can take away from this about the weight and the importance of following God's commandments. So with that in mind, I hope you'll join us next week as we continue our series looking at the Ten Commandments. And I pray that something said in this episode was a blessing or an encouragement to you. So with all that said, I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of An Average Account of Exceptional Things. And until next time, encourage one another, love your enemies, and count your blessings. (music) 